step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. Crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 8, Episode 1, the season premiere of The Courtney's Double Homicide. In this week's episode, we got the very basics of the case. I walked you through my take on the crime scene based on what I was seeing in the crime scene video and photos, and we learned a little bit about the Courtney's themselves, their background, their history, and their family. I am joined today remotely via Zoom by Mr. Mike Bussing. Hey, Bob. And Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, hey. All right, so we've got a lot of listener questions, and Mike and Zach, I want to hear your take on the Courtney's as well, so let's get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so so this case was a little different than normal. Zach, we always keep in the dark. Uh, but Mike usually has a little better idea of what's going on because he's in the office with me while we're working on the case. So uh, I imagine, Mike, I guess I'll start with you, even as you were, I know you knew some very basics of the case. But even as you were editing this first episode, was what was what was your initial thoughts on the on the case itself, and was there anything that you we weren't aware of or that was surprising to you? Well, first of all, it's really tragic that this happened. Second of all, it's kind of a it's it's a bizarre scene to me. Mm-hmm. What really stands out is what was it? There were four different cast iron skillets used in the crime, right? Just that alone, the idea that the killer used four different pans to kill these people is, it's heinous. It's really disturbing, you know? I mean, kind of like the stuff in Nightmares. Yeah, and it's, it's mind-boggling, too. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. Right, it really doesn't. Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested to know, too, I think we'll get into that as we, as we uncover the case, but I'd like to know if those were the only weapons used in the killings, because it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's just really bizarre. Right. Well, remember, there was knives used, too. They were both cut and stabbed several times on top of it. That, that's right. Yeah, I actually, that, I blanked on that for a second, but yeah, that's right. Yeah, so with these multiple weapons used, whoever did this crime was very, very disturbed. It's just really strange. Yeah, I agree. Zach, what'd you think? You didn't know hardly anything about it. Mind blown. 
it's crazy to me. This the whole thing is just crazy to me. The the scenario you set up. I have several questions that I think we're gonna eventually get into, but a lot of them are with the murder weapon or weapons. You know, I I can't wait to get into the the autopsy results to see what the actual cause of death is, mm-hmm. which I know that's down the road. But because you have these these blunt force trauma injuries with the frying pans, but then you have the stabbing wounds with the knife. You know, I almost wonder if the stabbing was to present it as something else that maybe they were already dead with the pans. Yeah, I and we're going to be getting into the autopsies next week. I have them. Um, ever, so far, it's been pretty forthcoming with all of my open records requests. So I have I have a lot of documents and files, and I and I've scanned through the autopsies already. But I haven't. You know, when we do the the episode on the autopsies, we'll break down every single wound. With that being said, I did watch the snapped episode, which we just watched it just to kind of get some background. But it's hard to believe anything that's on that show after knowing some real background behind some of these cases. Mm-hmm. So it introduced us to the case, but I don't know how much information is relevant through the snap show. Yeah. And, and honestly, I haven't seen it. I, and I was going to watch it and there's another one too. I don't remember what, what the other show, what the case was featured on, but I was going to watch it. And then I just knew I give her, you know, we went through this with Sandy Melgar mm-hmm. where she was on like women that kill or deadly women or something like that. And it was just, it was just terrible. So I, I didn't, I, I've already seen some people making comments and asking questions uh, about things that they saw on that episode, and and it was already frustrating me, stuff that is just blatantly not true, so I just left it alone. A lot of that's hard to figure out because, I mean, there's cases here locally that have been on TV. Um, m- one of my mother's best friends was murdered, and it, there's been several times that it's been, they've done different shows about it, and you watch the shows, and, and a lot of it's uh, fabricated, we'll say. Even though we know, I mean, because we grew up here, I know the woman, I know the woman that was murdered. We know the case. Mm-hmm. You know, you could tell what's fabricated. So I have a hard time believing some of these TV shows. Yeah, they, they they definitely spice them up a little bit. I mean, obviously not our TV show because it was a different a different animal. But I mean, in reality, it was long form. And also with me being an executive producer on it, it just wasn't happening. We, we weren't, we weren't going to do any of that over-dramatization crap that they do, but. A lot of those one-off shows, you know, like like Snap, which unfortunately is on the same network as my show, but you know where they, you know, every every episode they're covering another case. It's just they're they're trying to, you know, or, or like Women That Kill or Deadly Women or any of those shows. You know, they're 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 designed to, you know, tell you a creepy story about someone who snapped and killed them. You know, they're not they're not trying to give you an objective look at a case. They're trying to tell a story about someone who snapped. They have the legs to stand on to say it because you know. Debbie Perringer was, or Deborah Perringer was convicted of this crime, so they get to say she did it. All right, well, let's get into these questions. Our first one comes from John. The note seems key, whether we take it at face value or not. If we do, it seems to indicate prison time. The quote, son of a bitch and being stabbed in the husband seems like he was the target. And the quote, be careful who you let in the door indicates someone who didn't have a key. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the note definitely indicates that the husband was the target, but we also have to keep in mind that the intention of the note was to make it look as though the husband was the target. I mean, the, the note was, was stabbed into him after he was dead. It wasn't for him. So that's what we got to remember, right? So it doesn't mean that he wasn't the target, and it doesn't mean that it's not legitimate, but, but it also, to me, at this point, and, and we're going to hopefully get some experts in to really break the note down. To me, it seems like an obvious forensic countermeasure. I, it doesn't, you know, why, 
Why stab it into his leg after he's dead? Why write the note to him after he's dead? Are you trying to taunt police? What's the point of it? Uh, you know, so yeah, it, it does make it appear as though the husband was the target. But I, again, I think that that was the intention of the note and, and that may be just a printed countermeasure. I, I think something you brought up in the, the show about the note too was it being folded and the possibility of it coming from the printer in the house? Mm-hmm. And I think that could be a forensic countermeasure as well. That maybe it was printed in the house and they folded it on purpose to try to make it look like it came, you know, from outside. Sure. You know, I thought about it. That's why this case is so already is, is mind boggling mm-hmm. because that's a possibility, but that would indicate an extreme level of foresight, criminal sophistication for someone to think of folding the note up and then unfolding it to indicate to investigators yeah. that it came from somewhere else. That's some, that's some extreme criminal sophistication, but the crime itself looks like it's completely disorganized, not sophisticated at all. It was a, it was a cluster. It was a, a, a crazy, crazy scene that was happening there. And, and, and so like, it's hard to, put those two together, you know? So so wouldn't you think that it could actually be indicative of the opposite? The killer writes the note, doesn't know what to do with the note, thinks about folding it up and placing it somewhere like under a door or on the table for someone to find and unfold? That that actually makes makes pretty good sense and I've wondered about that too, you know, if so what you're saying is like they did, they killed them and then they typed the note and then they were going to stash it somewhere. Right, and then they realized that for whatever reason you know, stabbing it into the victim was a better idea. Mm-hmm. That theory makes a lot more sense than what I said, for sure. Right. Well, it does, it's not that what you said just doesn't make sense. It does make sense. It's just, it's hard to, there's so many layers of this case that are hard to fit together. You know, it's, it's like taking a bunch of puzzle pieces from six different puzzles and trying to, trying to piece them all together. It, it, it's, it's very, very, nothing, nothing adds up. So it's not, it's not a bad theory. It's just, it, it just, it's just it's hard for me to pair it with the murder but a lot of things are even if the, so just just the idea that the note was typed in the house to me like behaviorally and we're gonna you know hopefully we'll, we'll at some point we'll have jim clemente come on i haven't even talked to him about this case yet to have a look at it but so so if so you know deborah was convicted of this and it's her parents who she's been close with her whole life they said they've taken care of her they give her lots of money anytime they need she's needed it to the idea that even if like it was a fit of rage where this murder occurred, you know, like it wasn't planned and I, whoever did it, I don't think it was planned, but, but in this, in this fit of rage, the parents are killed, but then to be able to sit in the, and I've got the, the crime, hopefully by the time this, this episode airs, the crime scene photos will be up on our website. I'm, 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 I have to do a lot of redacting. It's why they're not up there yet. I'm working on it, but the computer that was pulled off of the, the desk onto the floor and the printer was feet, six feet away from Agnes's body. And I just can't imagine someone, even if they killed their parents in a fit of rage, then sitting there next to their dead mother and just typing away on the, on the keyboard. I, it just, it just, it, it's, it's just hard for me to, to, to wrap my brain around that happening. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot of sensory things that happen when you're around a dead person, especially somebody who dies of um, traumatic injuries like this, you know, without getting too in depth, I mean, there are smells, there are sounds. It's a, it's an, un, you know, in my years as being a firefighter, I was around it a lot. And even 
even though that was my job, it was it was disturbing. It's weird. It hits you. Those sensory issues hit you in weird ways you wouldn't think about. And then it's your mother. I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's it's uh, I, I, I don't know about the note yet. <laughs> we need we need some experts to come in and look at the behaviors on the scene. The one other thing I noticed about the note is some of the language in the note. You know, when they go on that that tirade of of all the name calling, all the, the cursing in the note, it just felt like it was overdone. And I don't think I think right. that was on purpose. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like that was somebody trying to portray how mad they were, because I don't feel like right. no one really talks like that. Like, if I'm going to curse you out, I'm not going to line up a bunch of words like this to do it and type it out and type it out. Yeah. And, and again, he's dead. So who are you typing it to? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, one thing one thing I thought of, and I'm just spitballing here. So the idea that they typed it before they went, some people have already brought up that the note says, you know, you should watch who you let in your door. And they thought, well, it must have been after the murder, after the murders, because how would they know they were let in the door? You know, until until they were already there, which which is I agree with the counter to that would be, well, if they weren't let in the door, then they wouldn't need the note. You know, so they plan for it to go right. It's possible. Not, I don't want to say probable. It's possible. But then I wonder if the note is legitimate. And I have no idea if it is or not. If it's legitimate. If it's not just a forensic countermeasure. To me, what it's indicating is that Agnes was the target. Like if it was a revenge against Smitty, mm-hmm. that the revenge was going to be to kill his wife. And maybe that's why the notes folded. That the initial intention was to kill his wife, and then leave him the note. You know, so when he hmm. gets it, when he, when he comes to, you know, you know, if the attack in the living room was to make to knock him unconscious, they were going to go kill his wife, leave him the note. So you know, we were assuming that the note was directed at him, like, "Haha, you're dead." Look at you know, they, they're writing a note to a dead person. But what if the initial intent was to write a note to a living person? about what they did to his wife. It's interesting. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, so real quick, do we know for a fact if the note was written and printed inside the house? No, we don't. I think that is the state's theory from what I understand. But I, but but from what I understand, and again, I haven't been through 90% of these documents yet. I'm trying to, you know, we're doing this in real time. You guys are learning as I learn. But my understanding from what I've been told from people who, who know the case is that it was never verified. It's a theory from the state that it was that it was printed at the house. And then there's also I read somewhere or saw in a documentary, there's a way to 
to figure that out, right? There's some sort of like um, printer fingerprint, some kind of strange little ink mark that every particular printer makes on whatever they're printing. Have you heard anything about that before? I have. There's a couple things they can do is, you know, number one, I think that they, you know, they could do a forensic analysis of the computer and they can tell if, a, you know, for example, Microsoft Word was opened up and someone typed on it at a certain time or anything like that. I think they can do the same thing with the printer. And yeah, I've also heard that they can tell from the ink. And I've seen in some of the, some of the photos I have, they're showing the paper and they, they keep indicating patterns on the paper which I'm assuming is probably when we get into the forensics is going to be part of that. But even with that, my understanding was it was never proven one way or the other where the note was, was typed and printed. Lauren says, you mentioned that Deborah was bipolar. Do we know if she was taking medicine at the time? I'm not sure about if she was taking medicine at the time. Uh, I haven't dug into the transcripts enough to know. And I haven't even honestly seen documentation yet that she was diagnosed as bipolar. That's just what I was, what, what I was told. I was also told by family members that even though she had a uh, bipolar diagnosis, that from them knowing her, that her issue was much more, they would describe it as clinical depression more than, than bipolarism. You know, with, with bipolar, you have, you know, you can have manic episode and, and then, you know, you're, you're up sometimes, you're down sometimes, but they would describe her as just being, you know, the way, the way she was described to me was her levels, if bipolar is what what her actual condition was or is i mean she's she's still alive she's in prison she's in prison with sandy actually uh the same unit uh medical unit but it's like her high the high end of her you know manic depression the manic part of that for her was like functioning like i can do my dishes i can get my kids to school like that's a good day for that that's a high day for her and then the low days were deep depression, can't get out of bed, not motivated to do anything. But, you know, so, it, you know, th- there's different. I don't know a lot on the topic, but I know that, you know, some people say there's people that, you know, when they're in their manic stages or, you know, you might describe as is hyper and super ener- energetic and just, you know, manic. And then, you know, the, then they would swing down to be depressive where, where, where her again, her, her manic stage, what you would, if it was bipolarism the way it was described to me was when she was manic that was just her being able to function like that manic for her was just a a good day lara wants to know how tall was deborah was she fit and active and what was her weight i I don't have i was looking on the tdcj website to see if i could get that information i'm sure it's in the police files i haven't found yet i don't have an exact height and weight what i have are pictures of deborah perringer from like the day of or the day after the murders and if I had to estimate, I would say she's five, four ish and probably, I don't know, 180, 190. She is, she, she is not tall and she is, she is visibly overweight. Definitely, definitely not physically fit and definitely not someone that you would see that would be, you wouldn't describe her as strong by looking at her. And from what the family's told me, she was absolutely not. I mean, half the time she didn't get out of bed. Which is, you know, interesting is probably one of the reasons the listeners asking here. When when I told my wife Becky about this case, the first thing she said to me is, "No fucking way. There's no way that this woman could take four cast iron skillets and swing them wildly." She even went and grabbed ours. So, so for those of you that don't know, my wife is a beach body coach. She is a, a fitness trainer. She works out every day. She lifts weights. 
and she grabbed our cast one of our cast iron skillets and was like it's heavy like it's hard to to hold up she's like i couldn't i couldn't swing this at your head i could maybe once but to to do it multiple times hard enough to break it and then do it you know and then grab another one and keep doing it there's no way and and so that you know i don't know obviously exactly it's, it's a lot of that's conjecture but she doesn't seem to me like a strong fit person. She definitely was not a fit person. And so how that plays in with the the weight and force used with the cast iron skillets, we'll have to dig into a little later. So I know a lot of the listeners had a question about this, and I had a question about this as well. All four skillets were cast iron skillets, correct? That's correct. Okay. Veronica wants to know, did Agnes have a wall of decorative cast iron skillets by chance? Or do we know how or where they were usually stored in the home? No, I, I don't think they were stored decoratively. I don't. I, I I don't think so. I didn't see anywhere in the crime scene photo. I have to look again. But Agnes's niece told me that the reason all the cast iron skillets were out was because Agnes was in the process of seasoning all of them. So I think they were probably kept in a in a cupboard somewhere. But she she supposedly had them out because she was seasoning them. For those for those of you that don't know, cast iron skillets. Mike actually ruined one of our cast iron skillets uh, that uh, several years ago. You, you remember that, Mike? Yeah, I put it in the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just now, a hundred thousand people just went. Oh! <laughs> Anybody listening that has a cast iron skillet, uh, Mike was house sitting for us and uh, decided to do us a favor and was cleaning up and 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 <laughs> threw Becky's cast iron skillet that she had seasoned for years into the dishwasher. Um, but for those of you that don't know, it takes a long time to get cast iron skillets where, you know, when you're done with them, you don't, you don't use soap on them and you, you rub a lot of oil into them and you, and you season them. Otherwise you think cast iron, everything will stick to it. But when you, when you get them seasoned properly and you get them kind of infused with oil over years and years and years, they become great things to cook on. They are cherished things, which is why, so we're in a, we're in a weird spot right now. Anytime, anybody that has been listening to truth and justice for any length of time knows what we would normally do immediately right now is an experiment. That's what we always do. I literally wanted to bring this up. Okay, go ahead. About doing an experiment. I I think we need to get together and figure out at what force these pans will break. I agree. Here's my problem. No one will give up their cast iron skillets. So if somebody wants to donate some cast iron, because that, yeah, and we've done things. Remember, Mike, we, we have... We have stabbed chickens. We have stabbed ribs. We have we have put pigs in water. We have, we have with turtles. We, we were always doing experiments. And my first thought was, man, I'd like to take one because it seems crazy the way they shattered. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. one of the pans. It's a perfect circle out of the middle. Like it does. Like it hit somebody on the head and the middle popped out of it. I'd really like to see how much force it takes to to break a pan like that. And we might be surprised. Yeah, I, and and people have posted articles on the fan page that some of them say. They're more brittle than you would think, and then other ones say they're not so brittle. I wonder it depends on the seasoning. Uh, but yeah, I would love to do an experiment where I take some cast iron skillets and you know hit them against something hard and, and just start to see if they shatter like that. Because one of the one of the family members told me that um, her theory was that they just banged them together. Can't, doesn't know why, but for some reason, walking through the house banging them together. But even that doesn't make sense because they're scattered across you know different rooms. Or what if it could be a precursor to just like an emotional breakdown and an episode that somebody had 
and was displaying anger, right? They're screaming and throwing pots all over the house. It has nothing to do with killing anybody. That's possible, too. And maybe the autopsy will tell us a little better about that. Because let's not forget, it maybe, maybe it slipped past you in the episode, one of the cast iron skillets was stuck in the wall. Oh, wow. Like, st- like, like stuck through the drywall, you know, and, and, and hanging there in the wall. So that was a cl- obviously thrown, you would think. Yeah, that sounds like a fit of rage. Mm-hmm. Why, the whole crime scene looks like a fit of rage. My, yeah, I don't remember where we start. Oh, she was asking about the, yeah, the cast iron skillet. So, yeah, so there's no way to know if that's what actually was happening. But that is the theory that, that was relayed to me. It was spoken to me as fact. I just have no way of verifying it, that, that Agnes had her skillets out to season them. Cindy says, I thought I heard a reference of Agnes napping, maybe because she was found in the bedroom. But if that were true, why would the groceries be left on the kitchen counter? So the, the groceries are another baffling thing. So in the, they weren't on the counter. They were on the floor. I don't remember if I mentioned it in the episode or if they saw it on the snap or whatever. Did, did I mention anything about the, the groceries yet? Dude, I don't think so, but I'm, I've been terrible at rec- recalling this so far today. So right. When Mike's editing, he's so caught up in the sound of everything that he sometimes oh, he literally doesn't know what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it's just a totally different experience than just hearing it outright one time through. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So the bags of groceries are... And I and I didn't get clear pictures of this until just actually yesterday. I finally got the DA's file that had some photos that weren't included in the police department file. And yeah, they're, they're just there's you can see a, some bananas that are that are hanging out like the groceries were set on the floor, like between the dining room and the kitchen, and and they're kind of spilled over. You can see like some bananas hanging out of them and stuff. So then the the whole nap theory gets gets thrown thrown into question, like. She doesn't seem from what the way she was described to me by family is that she, you know, she was described as a, you know, an old fashioned Southern woman, you know, like, like makes the bed every day. And, and as a matter of fact, said that, you know, we know, we know that she was taking a nap because, you know, that, that she would every morning make the bed and take the extra pillows and put them in the closet. And then when it was, when they would take an afternoon nap, they would take the pillows out of the closet and, and turn down the bed from the bottom up. So it didn't mess up the top and kind of lay along the bed i don't know i can't picture what that means but so you know she, she, we're sure she was taking a nap clearly she was on the bed at some point you know or the pillow and everything it was was beaten there apparently a southern woman or agnes in general or in particular doesn't have their pillows on the bed until they're unless they're napping but she doesn't seem like the type that would come home and set her groceries on the floor and then go take a nap you know it, it seemed like more like they were that she was startled into there. But so like the state's theory from what I understand is that she walked in uh, the state's theory obviously is that their daughter Deborah committed this murder. So their, their theory is she walked in on the murder. She, she, she sees Deborah killing Smitty or Lloyd and drops the groceries and retreats back to the bedroom. And that's when, you know, they, they, she eventually caught up with her and, and then killed her in there. But that doesn't make sense either. I mean, the, the groceries look like they were set pretty neatly down on the floor, and they're quite a ways away from the door. If she went in through the garage, you know, she would have walked. Through, she would walk through and and seen this happening, and then continued to walk another fifteen feet with groceries in hand, and then set them down, and then go. I, I don't. I I don't know. I don't know about the groceries. And then also you have Deborah, which I haven't read all of her trial testimony yet, but I know that she says that. That her mom came home from the grocery store while she was there with the groceries. It's just I don't 
I don't know, sounds like anything at the moment. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sarah says, are there any bank records that tell us about transactions for the Courtney's that day? Were there possibly two shopping trips, one before Deb visited and or one after? Um, I don't know what they did with the financial records. Hopefully they looked into that, but I, I do know that there, that there were, um, receipts, at least one from there was, there was something to do with, with Deb was going to pick up some trees from the, for them or going to get a receipt for some trees. So I know they were looking at receipts. I don't know if there's a grocery store receipt. I, I, I there's a receipt in the crime scene video photo photos that you can see I, I haven't seen one that was close up enough that you can read it but i don't know if that, it's by the groceries so hopefully we'll get some answers to that a lot of this stuff we're going to get you know th- this was just a first swipe at the case we're going to dig into every single one of these elements in detail as we move forward tony says what about the spare key why give a neighbor a key when you have family in town why call in a wellness check simply because the person didn't go to work or is this just something older folks and nosy neighbors do Start with the key. The key doesn't surprise me at all. That's that's I think pretty standard practice. I think you know I mentioned my mother in law in this episode. I guarantee you that at least two of her neighbors have keys to her house. It's just not uncommon, especially with that generation. To you know, in case they they need help with something or for whatever reason, they they, they it's not uncommon to give neighbors a key. The nine one one call. So this is baffling to me. So when I what, what I've started to do as I was researching for this episode. You know, I wanted some basic things. I wanted the story, you know, the background that we heard, a little victimology, and I wanted to then walk through the story of the day. So how did this happen? How were the police alerted? So I looked through, in my police files, I don't have the 911 call, and I requested it specifically uh, from the clerk, the DA, and the Fort Worth PD. Don't have the call. And so then I go to the trial testimony. Typically, at a trial, that's how they walk through. They, you know, they have to establish things through witnesses. Like they have to establish that this crime occurred in Tarrant County. They have to establish who Lloyd and Agnes Courtney were. They have to establish that they were in fact murdered. And then they have to kind of typically they'll walk through how did police get there? How were they notified? What blah 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 blah. So usually, one of the first witnesses you see is the person who called nine one one. Even if it's just to say. Yes, for this reason, I called 911 and I asked the police to check them out. There, no one testifies to, you know, and, and it may be in one of the officers' testimony, but only all the Gonzalez and, I don't want to get his name wrong, Kalusha, I think was the name of the other officer. They were the first two on the scene. Gonzalez didn't testify. Only the other officer did. I read through his testimony. It doesn't say who called 911. And I, so, what I'm getting at is I don't know who called 911. And to me, that's very significant. So my understanding was a concerned neighbor called for a welfare check. And I always thought it was the Zabos, Mabel and Joe across the street, in that they, they walked over and gave the police the key when they got there. But as I read through Mabel Zabo's trial transcript, I found they did not call 
she only knew the police were there because she looked across the street around 5.30 and saw police over there. And then eventually the police came and knocked on their door and said, hey, have you seen anything? And they said, no, but we have a key. So I don't know who called 911, but it, but it could be very, very significant. Because, could it be the killer? Because we're talking about now Mabel, you know, their close friends across the street noticed that Smitty didn't go to work at one. But why did some, you know, what triggers somebody to call for a welfare check? It hasn't been days. We're talking, you know, it's that day, that, you know, that, that afternoon, all of a sudden somebody thinks something must be wrong. It, it just, it seems re- that that's a big, big, big question mark for me. So going back to what we talked about, you know, I watched the episode of Snapped and the way they presented it was that he didn't show up for work, work called his home, no one answered, and then they sent people. Oh, okay. That that could be that could very well be it. Again, I don't. That's just how they presented it. I have no idea fact or fiction with that, but that is how they presented it. it I'm I'm sure that that's that's probably because what I had heard was that because he didn't go to work, that's what triggered people to um, to call for the welfare check. And then reading Mabel's testimony, she noted that he didn't go to work at one like he normally does, and so my brain thought them. That they were the ones that called, but that that does make sense that his work might call, you know, when they when they don't answer. So that, that hopefully that answers that question. Pamela wants to know what documents will we have access to, and when can we expect to see them posted online? Uh, you'll you'll have everything I have, um, as we always do. We will we'll, we'll put documents out as we discuss them. Katie just just messaged me today and said that she's got the season eight of the website up and running. And I'm working on on doing some redactions, and then I'll send the stuff over to Katie, and she'll get them up. So they'll all be up. We're a little delayed, and that's on me because I just I've just been swamped, and I haven't had time to get through all the redactions yet of the crime scene photos. But everything will be up as we move along. Angela wants to know. Not sure if you said this or not, but was there any forced entry used? No, according to the uh, from what I've seen from the first arriving officer on scene, all the doors were locked, all the windows were shut, locked, screens intact. And another interesting note uh, was that the front door, he said the deadbolt was locked on the front door, uh, which is interesting because that we know that the neighbor saw, saw Deborah leaving, I believe, out the front door. It might have been through the garage, but that's just something to think about. You know, if they locked the front door with the deadbolt, they had to go out a different door. Katie would like to request a timeline of the adoption to understand the age differences between the daughters and also if Brenda ever lived with them or it was just paperwork. I will have that information uh, for you th- this week. Uh, prior to the doing the episode, I, c- I could not find I was having a hell of a time tracking down exact dates. I've talked to family and I've got some abouts as far as the times go, but um, one of the family members just shared some documents with me that I haven't gone through yet that hopefully will narrow that down, so I'll, I'll share that as soon as I have it. She adds to that, is the judge the mother of Aaron? No, the judge, so um, Allison, I didn't realize till I was re-listening to the episode that Allison had misspoke. She said she was the great aunt of Deborah Perringer or, uh, uh, yeah, of Deborah, um, but she's actually, she would be Deborah's cousin. And she would also be Aaron's cousin. The judge is the daughter of Agnes's brother or sister. And then Aaron is the son of Agnes's, another one of Agnes's sisters. So, yeah, that would make them, if my mind's eye is doing a family tree right, it would make them cousins. Our last question's from Veronica. Does this case mean that us Texas people will get to have some sort of truth and justice get together when you come down? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I was hoping to have already been there. That's one of the things that's been a little tricky about this case is that the uh, the pandemic travel has been put on on hold because I was hoping to have already been down to Fort Worth a couple times by now. So yeah, as soon as travel opens back up again and I can get down there, I've got some doors to knock on, some people to meet and interview. And yeah, as any time that we're in any area, we usually try to do you know local meetups so that we can meet any listeners that are in the area. Um, so hopefully that'll be coming soon. And uh, fellas, I, I think, Mike, you said that was the last question. That's it. Okay, that's perfect because I'm recording this on my laptop and I am now at 4% battery. So perfect timing. Zach, Mike, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. And thank you all of you for listening. Make sure you tune in Sunday. We're going to start breaking down the crime scene investigators report. So we'll have much more detail about the crime scene and we'll see what has been documented and investigated by professionals that I couldn't see through my viewing of just the crime team photos. So that'll be on Sunday and we'll talk to you guys again next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. 
However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Thank you.